This is Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello folks, this is Ben and this is A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers, my photography podcast, How are you doing? I hope you're all okay. Yes, I'm fine. Thank you very much for asking. Still a bit tired from the weekend. I went down to Bristol to the BOP Festival, which stands for Books on Photography. That takes place annually down there in Bristol at the Martin Parr Foundation and sort of in conjunction with the Royal Photographic Society. It's kind of a collaboration, really, um, because those two institutions happen to be right smack bang next to each other and so this was the third year of BOP and uh, my first time down there and it's a a good old photo book and photography celebration really I suppose you could say there's lots of um, bookstores lots of talks by various artists um, several of which I went to and enjoyed the great Roger Deakins was down there because he had a photo book released last year most of you will know him as um, just about the most legendary cinematographer uh, on the planet and um, what an absolute sweetheart he is but anyway I digress there were a couple of other good talks I went to it was all good fun and uh, extremely tiring but um, I will be bringing you a special uh, from Bop in the coming weeks and I had a catch up with the man himself Martin Parr we had a nice chat I'll bring you probably all of that as part of that episode and uh Martin was fresh from a shocker of uh, an experience in uh, Paris where he ended up for a number of days in uh, intensive care. And um, all I can say is it was very good to see him. Uh, And I think a lot of people shared that sentiment. Um, He's a trooper, so, you know, wasn't going to miss it, but um, had been extremely unwell only a few days before. So anyway, nice to see and catch up with Martin. Nice to get down there, see a whole bunch of old friends. Oh, by the way... The team I was in, who I'll tell you more about when I bring you the episode, um, on the Satanta Books quiz, well, we won, didn't we? Of course, well, we didn't win. The other team who drew with us, because basically two teams got the same score, they um, like to think they won, and um, we all just kept modest and quiet about it, but um, we were joint winners. The Charcoal Book Club has just opened the call for entries for the 7th Annual Chico Hot Springs Portfolio Review and Publishing Prize, by the way. 2023 speakers are Antoine Dagatar, Stacey Kranitz, Curran Hattelberg, Anastasia Samolova, Iga Posner and Vanessa Winship. Also, featured reviewers include the likes of Brian Schutmatt, Andrea Modica, Raheem Fortune, Tanya Franco-Klein, Todd Heido and many more. If you aren't familiar, Chico Review is a juried photo book retreat that takes place over six nights at Chico Hot Springs Resort near Livingston in Montana, a beautiful setting. 64 photographers will be selected by a jury and invited to spend the week taking part in portfolio reviews, artist lectures and panel discussions, as well as communing over drinks in the saloon and soaking in the hot springs and much more. At the conclusion of the event, one grand prize winner will be awarded the Charcoal Publishing Prize and have a book published and distributed worldwide by Charcoal Book Club. Submission deadline, 27th of November. ChicoReview.com is where you apply now. So go to ChicoReview.com to get full details and apply now. Now, Ben Brody is my guest this week. Um, Great to chat with Ben. Actually, I saw him at the last Chico Review earlier this year in the spring and... um, I've been wanting to have him on really since 
his book Attention Service Member came out because that was a Charcoal Book Club book of the month and um, therefore I was sent one by them. And, um, you know, it's one of those books that uh, you don't forget once you've seen it. So we talked extensively about that book um, and indeed Ben's new book, 300 Metres. And uh, it's always a great pleasure to hear from him. Let me do uh, the bio, which is uh, short and sweet. This is from Ben's website. Ben Brody is an independent photographer, educator and picture editor working on long form projects related to the American wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and their aftermath. He's the director of photography at the Ground Truth Project and Report for America and a co-founder of Mass Books. His first book, Attention Service Member, was shortlisted for the 2019 Aperture Paris Photo First Book Award and is now in its second edition. Ben holds an MFA from Hartford Art School's International Low Residency Photography Programme and he resides in Western Massachusetts. So, yeah, that's the bio. Only thing it doesn't mention, of course, is that Ben was, for some years, a serving member of the American Army, where he was a combat photographer. And anyway, you'll hear all about that. It's part of the story. And um, I hope you enjoy it. Here's Ben Brody. Good to see you. Thanks so much for joining me. You've got a new book out, which I wanted to talk about. And um, inevitably, I wanted to talk about all the stuff that preceded that, really, because everything plays into it. Um, what I'm going to do is assume no knowledge on the part of the listener, because a lot of the listeners will, you know, no attention service member, and they'll know your work, and they'll have heard you talk, and others will not. So it's hard for me to kind of know where to steer that. But I'm unapologetically going to cater to the people who who aren't aware of your story. And the ones that are, I'm sorry, guys, but you're going to have to just, uh, you know, hear Ben talk about stuff that, that you, you already know about. Anyone who's got attention service member and, um, you know, has read the text in it. Well, I, it'd be really nice to just get a bit of extra context from you and to just get your comments on some of it. To go right back, though, where did you grow up? Um, so I grew up in eastern Massachusetts, uh, just north of Boston. Um, yeah, I was. Uh, I grew up in a house that was built in 1668, for which right. for. America to grow up in a house that was built a hundred years before America existed. Um, yeah, it was pretty that's unique. Very, yeah, that's but by any standards, that's that's pretty old. So, like, what were you into school? Were you academic? What was your kind of areas of interest when you were young? Um, so, I mean, I imagine people are most interested in like how I got into photography. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I started getting interested in photography in high school. It actually happened really rapidly. Um, you know, it, like, like all things, you know, for young people, like once you find something that you have a natural aptitude for, uh, you tend to, uh, glom onto it and, uh, you know, really dive in. Um, you know, for me, that was immediately photography, probably my point of entry, um, was on the technical side of photography, uh, you know, using a Pentax K1000, um, learning how to manipulate this, uh, you know, expensive finicky machine, um, well, expensive for a kid in high school. Yeah. Um, you know, that was sort of my point of entry. And, and, you know, the mid to late nineties were, 
to my mind, sort of a golden age of photography magazines. Um, so even going to high school in rural upstate New York, um, those magazines were a connection for me uh, to the broader conversations going on in photography and helped me, you know, even as a teenager, uh, feel engaged in those conversations and, you know, things I wanted to find things I wanted to respond to visually. Was it always a kind of documentary thing that you were drawn to? Not at all. Um, I, you know, as soon as I could figure out how to use a four by five, um, I, uh, started making like landscape imagery. I got, I spent like a year where pretty much I only photographed large format, black and white under moonlight. Um, and, uh, it really wasn't until, uh, September 11th and more specifically, uh, in late 2002 during the run up to the Iraq war that I got particularly interested in documentary photography and deciding that was how I wanted to engage with the medium. So I had already been interested in, um, you know, almost like decorative photography for uh, like five or six years before I really found documentary. Didn't I hear you say that you'd, you failed your documentary course or one of your early courses? Yeah. Uh, So I went to photography school in Boston um, after high school and I tried a photojournalism course, you know, what the hell, right? Mm. And, uh, oh yeah, I failed it immediately. Like the whole concept of like hard deadlines, like go out, like take some pictures. If they're not great pictures, got to turn them in anyway, got to hit the deadline. Mm. It was just not, I was just not into it at all. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a learning right there, considering where you've ended up. Just because you fail something initially doesn't mean to say, you know, it isn't going to come right at some point in the future. But um, you mentioned 9-11 and then, of course, your decision to join the army. And that was very much driven by your decision to to want to photograph in Iraq, which is obviously where you were going to get sent at that point. Mm-hmm. But like, to what extent did 9-11 impact that decision to join up? You know, I think as a young person, um, you're mostly sort of focused on your own appetites and your own uh, immediate uh, social surroundings. Um, I wasn't really that aware of the larger world and, you know, the forces that shape, you know, my own identity as an American, um, you know, my personal identity um, until that moment, um, you know, being, uh, a Jewish person from Eastern Massachusetts, I was, uh, you know, culturally already very skeptical of hyper-nationalism, you know, growing up in the shadow of World War II, um, you know, my grandfather, uh, served in Europe and, um, you know, I, uh, I felt like, something insane is going on in my country and that I needed to get engaged. I I mean, I I also like grew up more, uh, immediately in the shadow of Vietnam. Um, not that, uh, my parents, uh, served, but it was, you know, a very relevant, uh, sort of cultural, uh, touchstone in America. You know, it had only ended, you know, 20 years before I was in high school, Mm -hmm. Um, 
and uh, the photography that came out of Vietnam, and that I that idea that you could challenge systems of power with photography was very attractive to me as a young person. Um, now, as someone in their early twenties, like I, uh, you know, who's been interested in photography for five years, you can imagine I had no money. Um, mm. I had. Uh, uh, so I had no money to like just sort of fly myself to Afghanistan or Iraq um, and photograph on my own. I had no experience in photojournalism that would allow me to get one of these uh, military embeds. Um, so I only uh, I felt like my only option was to join the military as a combat photographer. Yeah, just to sort of great example of a bit of uh, kind of pragmatic lateral thinking really in a way it was like a simple you know this is how I'm going to get there now you have said of course that your mandate was to photograph the war in a way that justified the existence and uh, to, that justified its existence and exaggerated its uh, accomplishments how did they sort of attempt to control that though once you found yourself there and, and taking pictures sure so as uh, like during my first tour, for example, I was a specialist, which is a junior enlisted soldier. Um, so I had a, a staff sergeant above me and a major above him in my little brigade combat team. And I would just go out on operations and photograph the whole thing as best I could without any thought to, you know, what would be useful, what would uh, sort of hit these markers of, you know, aggrandizing the, uh, uh, the war and, you know, promoting the specific military outcomes that we were trying to hit. So that sort of censorship and story shaping was something that happened above me. Um, and the more I saw, you know, the difference between my raw take and what was actually published in sort of military newsletters and press releases, which are basically email blasts to any proper civilian journalist who has covered anything related to the military or the war. Um, yeah, I heard so many complaints about these email blasts. Like, you just mm, couldn't yeah. get off the list. Right, um, right. That actually, um, you know, it did two things. So one... It shaped my photography to make the pictures into more effective propaganda. Um, by my second tour, where I was really uh, setting up my own uh, schedule, you know, like I could go to General Petraeus's uh, briefings in the morning and that afternoon figure out like what sort of major operations are going on in the battle space just get on a helicopter and, you know, tell the lieutenant or captain on the ground, hey, you know, I'm with you. If you don't right. like it, you can take it up with uh, General Lynch. So, so you had a huge amount of freedom, actually. That's what I'm trying to get my head around, because I always think that everything in the military must be super kind of tightly controlled. But in a way, you just sort of did your own thing without any interference. So my second tour, that's absolutely true. Um, and it was a really unique position to be in. Um, you know, you I couldn't think of anybody else who could sort of roam the battle space with that kind of freedom. Um, and, uh, and I really felt like I made the most of it. Um, like I was always out 
uh, on operations. And, uh, yeah, I made a tremendous number of pictures. Mm. Um, yeah, I think part of the reason, like I was given that freedom is because I was producing. Um, and also there was like, some stuff going on with the, like the staff members above me, you know, they were like engaged and, you know, adulterous relationships and, you know, had stuff going on where like, they just couldn't really keep an eye on me and I wasn't causing any problems. So, you know, (laughs) yeah, well, you weren't, you weren't causing any direct problems, but then were you sort of intending from the start to kind of subvert that mandate to some extent, because you were, you didn't go in, you know, kind of eyes, you know, kind of wide. And you had a lot more skepticism about what was going on in Iraq from the beginning, didn't you? I did. Um, But at the same time, I was still a soldier in the United States Army. I was a non-commissioned officer in the United States Army. So I was a sergeant Mm. my second tour. And that was something that uh, I took really seriously and wanted to do well at. you know, that is as much a part of my personality as my, you know, inherent skepticism given my cultural upbringing. Mm, mm. Um, so there was always a tension um, between those two instincts. Um, I found something of an outlet uh, blogging um, on MySpace, which a friend of mine had uh, told me about. So I, I made sort of a little blog on MySpace. I would send uh, email blasts um, out to my friends and family as well with images. So it was a way of sort of writing my own story and controlling my own narrative, even though that stuff was not ever seen like or published, um, you know, in any kind of uh, publicly accessible form until I made attention service member where some of that text from Iraq made it into uh, the narrative um, that uh, sort of underpins a service Mm. member. Mm. You write really beautifully, actually. I don't know if that's something you've, you know, you were sort of aware of having a a talent for at the time, but it's clear from, you know, those little uh, tableau that you include in the book that um, you've got a bit of a talent for that. Yeah, I mean, writing is something I've always taken really seriously. Um, even from before I was interested in photography and had found photography. Um, you know, I actually found the first photo book I ever made um, the other day, which was for uh, a high school English assignment um, where I used archival imagery uh, from my own family. And um, it was interesting to me to see, like, how much that little book that I made when I was 15 is very much uh, similar to the way I work now and the way I try to integrate image and text uh, Mm. together. Um, But when confronting uh, propaganda and trying to subvert propaganda, uh, you know, there are a lot of different strategies I've used within that interaction of image and text and wrestled with over the years. And I've had, you know, failed experiments with it that took me a year to figure out that it wasn't working, mm. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, in extreme personal danger. So, right. you know, it's hard to give somebody a roadmap to success with that when it, 
you know, and some in terms of something that like can happen quickly, uh, you really need to give yourself the time to, uh, you know, experiment and wrestle with it. Um, mm. And the fact that the global war on terror lasted for uh, 20 years, and that was what I covered primarily for my career, like it gave me that time. Mm-hmm. Well, um, one of the things we, we should sort of point out for people who haven't got the book is that because you were obviously shooting for the military, there were the copyright on your, on those images is public domain basically. And, you know, some of the things that you include um, in the book are sort of sections where you're showing screen grabs and all kinds of very random kind of lo-fi imagery of your pictures having been used in all kinds of weird contexts. So that's very much a kind of integral part of, of the book, I think is that you're showing, you know, these quite, in some cases, quite heroic kind of images, you know, the sort of stuff that we're kind of conditioned to expect to see, but you're also playing with those expectations to some extent as well. Yeah, I think the medium of the book is, uh, you know, it's the medium I wanted to work in in order to subvert some of those expectations about, you know, what do we expect a war picture to look like? And, you know, using the, like, text narrative um, to bring you into sort of the internal struggle around that. Like, you know, when you make these pictures that are perceived by, uh, you know, a public audience in one way as this sort of nakedly heroic, like, one-dimensional Hollywood superhero type of narrative, and the people in those pictures had a very different experience with that moment. You know, this was like a horrible battle and I'm representing it in the way that like Hollywood would, mm. you know, represent it with like, you know, Chris Pratt, you know, running mm. through yeah. <laughs> the fog and smoke, <laughs> firing accurately at the, you know, shapeless, nameless enemies of freedom. Bad guys, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think like, finding those pictures being utilized in such an absurd way, like to sell vape pens or, you know, radio equipment, um, or just as, uh, computer backdrops that are like being sort of pushed in the same Mm -hmm. way that screen grabs from video games or anime, um, sort of helps visualize, what that feels like, you know, to see your work, uh, repurposed and reappropriated. So, yeah. yeah. So I'm reappropriating the reappropriated, um, which, uh, you can do like, if you want to make a book, that's a send up of my book using my like work that I made in the army, you're welcome to, it's public domain. Yeah. It's very weird. Well, I suppose the upside then is that all those images that you did take that were not perceived to be, you know, uh, the kind of thing they were looking for, to put it sort of simply, you, you know, you, you were free to then use when it came to to the book because, you know, was there issues with that? Yeah, or so they, there's okay. a bit of a gray area there. <laughs> okay. Um, and it appears that I've gotten away with it. Um, right. But so pictures that have been officially released through U.S. government channels made by a U.S. government employee, which a soldier falls into that category, are public domain. However, I took all, I saved all my pictures. Um, 
And many of the pictures in the book were not released through official channels. You know, of course I was, you know, careful not to release anything that was classified because that's like mm. a real crime. Um, yeah. And I also, you know, I didn't focus on the sort of carnage and that, like as Christoph Mangert put it, um, war porn um, in my book because I felt like that had been done before. And I wanted to make a book that was accessible for people while still making a serious challenge to, you know, people's sort of preconceptions uh, about what war pictures are supposed to look like. Mm. Um, so I think by excluding those two categories, the military wasn't particularly interested in coming after me um, right. about, uh, yeah. you know, these images. Yeah, so you kind of snuck it, snuck it through there, as you say, grey area. Yeah, I mean, I heard you talk in terms of that whole thing of perpetuating these um, kind of tropes to be a kind of feedback loop, which when one thinks about it, you know, it suddenly becomes very obvious that that is the case. Could you just sort of explain what you meant by that a little bit, though, for people who aren't really sure. thinking... Yeah, so I, I believe the first time I ever heard that term, the feedback loop described in this way, was from uh, Tim Hetherington in an interview, the late Tim Hetherington. Mm. Um, and it was describing a phenomenon that I had observed many times, which is basically that, you know, the military or the, uh, the media photographs war. Um, those representations of war are then translated into the sort of Hollywood cinematic universe and also uh, video games. Um, soldiers look at those representations and they start acting in that way and like re reacting to your camera in that way. And then you photograph that, which is then like reappropriated by Hollywood video games. <laughs> And, you know, at, at this point, it's become this, like, intense fetishization of the sort of special operations, you know, the, uh, the more, like, secret and specialized and highly trained and supposedly invincible, uh, the more cachet it has. Whereas, like, mm. that representation and that, like, sort of ideation of military valor is relatively recent. Um, you know, looking at, uh, World War II, like that was not sort of, uh, how heroism was defined, uh, visually, uh, or mm. Vietnam for that, for that example, uh, for that. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, uh, it was a very conscious decision on my part to make a photo book. I felt like there was a space in culture to make a photo book that was about, uh, that was narrated by a totally ordinary soldier uh, mm. who was not some like scary CAG operator or, you know, CIA spook. Um, and also by uh, a pretty ordinary photographer, um, you know, not like a famous photographer with a storied history um, mm. who was really invested in sort of a cult of personal celebrity. Um, you know, I, when I made attention service member and now 300 meters, which is almost like an epilogue to uh, service member, um, I had the luxury of having like probably 75 photo books already about the global war on terror that had come out before me. So I was able to like analyze those books and assess, 
you know, so what hasn't been done before? Because a lot mm. had been done. There are a lot of those books that are, you know, absolutely brilliant and really influential and, you know, some that are really problematic that, you know, I was responding to, you know, what I saw as like a really flawed or, or outright mm. false uh, narrative about the war. Yeah. I remember you saying to me when, when I last saw you that when you sort of started trying to explain to people what your plan was with attention service member, most of them, if not all of them just went, well, that isn't, that's impossible. Do you remember saying that to me that there was, there was a lot of that kind of reaction, but I was wondering if that is what people said, what were they really talking about? Were they talking about it conceptually or, or kind of in a more, in a more kind of physical way? What, what were the, what was the thing that they felt was the, the sticking point in, in bringing it to fruition, which you then did. <laughs> right. Yeah. So what I was talking about then, uh, those were conversations that actually happened in art school, um, oh, right. which I did after uh, I left Afghanistan in 2016. I um, used my GI bill to pay for an MFA in photography. Um, mm. I went to the Hartford art school, which is a really photo book focused program. And I went to Hartford not because I was really interested in the opinions of my like classmates and uh, teachers, um, but because I wanted to learn concrete skills for like how to make a photo book. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I find it interesting to be reminded that in critiques, when I tried to show these really va- varying and disparate. Um, bodies of work like my like weird grainy like nighttime like a rock photography with you know my more sort of you know sophisticated and conventional photojournalism from Afghanistan along with um, these very sort of moody black and white images from my uh, home life uh, you know apparently they told me that like none of it like worked together but right. that went right over my head. I wasn't listening. I didn't care. Um, right, right. I just made the book like the best I could, and yeah. I made the book I wanted to make. Um, you know, yeah. And you had, a, I mean, you had. I mean, this is another kind of learning. You know, only only you can really decide how it should be, given that it's your your baby, your work, your idea. Um, but let's talk about what you just referred to. Then this kind of contrasting style between quite lo-fi kind of snapshot almost aesthetic stuff and the much more professional photojournalism. I think you said something about the, the vernacular images of war make as much if not more sense than the more professional photojournalism. Can you sort of explain what you meant by that a little? Sure. I, I mean, I, I think like if you just assess the cultural impact of photography of these wars in a dispassionate way not saying like well this is like the best picture of you know the war but rather like what are the most impactful pictures of the war what are the most iconic pictures what are the war what are the pictures that um got people's attention and did start to fulfill some of these you know sort of increasingly unreachable standards of creating positive change through photojournalism, uh, what you arrive at um, for Iraq would definitely be the Abu Ghraib uh, photographs, which 
were snapshots made by soldiers bragging about torturing uh, prisoners under their care. And in Afghanistan, I would say those images are probably pretty recent. And it's a short video of people clinging um, to a C-17 cargo plane as it takes off and then falling off that plane to their deaths. Mm. Um, so, and I think there's something, there's something there, um, to, uh, you know, to consider when making professional photojournalism, um, which is that it's not just access. It certainly has nothing to do with, uh, you know, using professional equipment and composing your pictures and, you know, complex and sophisticated ways, um, but rather, you know, making this really sort of visceral work. And maybe that has something to do with the fact that most pictures that people interact with are pictures that they themselves took or their friends took or non-professional photographers took. Um, that So that when you communicate in that visual language, um, maybe it resonates with people uh, in mm -hmm. a way that photojournalism uh, or professional photography seems more, uh, you know, it seems too polished. It seems like it could be fake. It seems like it's too much in dialogue with advertising photography. And if you actually look at military photography, like, you know, people, soldiers like, like I was who have that job as a combat photographer, um, and how the sort of visual aesthetic has evolved over the years, right now it's very much in dialogue with adventure type photography so when you see like you look at like a rock climbing magazine or something like that adventure sports the picture the military pictures look very much the same um and that's because like the military uh photo educational system um is working with uh photographers who do that kind of work um right you know that's the kind of work that gets published that's the kind of work that um, military photographers are incentivized to make. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, photography is just this, like, unbroken conversation. And, mm. um, you know, art school was great for me in order to, like, actually understand the criteria by which we judge photographs and be able to, like, articulate uh, why this photograph looks the way it does and, uh, you know, uh, assess what that means. I mean, in your book, there's a great kind of combination of things where, you know, the kind of everyday kind of banality also is, is, is an important thing to convey, I think, which, you know, all the best documents of, of, of the military do. And it does that. And I think that's part of the kind of lo-fi aesthetic, you know, the kind of pictures of food or, or pictures of very everyday situations. But you've, and you've also, like I said, I've already said, you know, you're kind of playing with our expectations, but the pictures aren't captioned. They're not contextualized at all. So in a way you're sort of, you're not really letting us know whether you're being ironic or not in a way you're sort of leaving us to, to decide ourselves. Um, and, and, and we end up making all kinds of assumptions, but did you, were you tempted to sort of, it feels like that's a kind of little bit of mischief going on from, from, from you as well there really, because you, you want to point out the kind of absurdities. I think the absurdity is, is, is a word you used. And also that crushing lack of irony that the military seems to have sort of unique to the military. They just, that word just 
does not exist in 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 their vernacular. But you're also you're not you're not giving us any clues, basically. In it, apart from if you, if one reads the text carefully, and then you can sort of start putting it together with the images. Yeah, so there's eight thousand words of text in attention service member, and about four hundred words of text in three hundred meters. And uh, I wanted the book to be able to function even if you don't read the text at all, because I know some people don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I broke the text and service member up into four or maybe five sort of inserts. And uh, I mean, I do think the book works a lot better if you read the text. And I think mm-hmm. the book also works if you only read the text and, you know, just kind of skim over the pictures, but mm-hmm. obviously it works better if you just read the whole thing from start to finish. Um, I, I mean, I think, uh, one thing, like one body of work that was really influential for me um, in deciding how the image and text were going to function together and create that sense of irony and absurdity without it being just a cacophonous mess, um, which if I felt like if there hadn't been text, it, it would be. Um, uh, one really important reference for me was uh, Kurt Vonnegut's book, Slaughterhouse-Five. So there's a literary device in Slaughterhouse-Five where the uh, protagonist, Billy Pilgrim, uh, becomes unstuck in time, which means he involuntarily time travels um, between his present-day life being an optometrist in uh, upstate New York, um, between uh, his service in World War II, during the firebombing of Dresden, um, where Vonnegut actually was, and uh, in the future where he's been uh, kidnapped by aliens and displayed in a zoo. And it's an amazing device to convey the dislocation and disorientation that is inherent in the experience of war. Um, And I wanted to use... Uh, the sort of lack of captioning in the images, but a reference to those images in the text. Um, So, you know, you'll see one picture and then go through another 40 pictures before you arrive at a piece of text that references a picture way back. So it's a way of moving you forward and backwards uh, through a book in, you know, a nonlinear way. But the text is actually, like, really linear. You know, the text is easy to follow. It's written in a narrative, chronological, um, autobiographical sense. Um, And I I really think that that linearity is what sort of holds this, like, cacophonous, kaleidoscopic uh, visual presentation um, together. And the, the same is true at 300 meters, I think. Yeah, because after that, you you went to Afghanistan as a civilian photographer. I want to talk a little bit about that, obviously. But then in the book, the pictures are mixed together, right? So again, that's part of what you're talking about. Yeah, so the Iraq pictures and the Afghanistan pictures are uh, generally separated. There's a few that are, uh, you know, there's a few pictures from Afghanistan that are in the Iraq section and and a couple vice versa. Um, but they are treated the same way. They're printed on the same sort of rough Mm. uncoated paper, full bleed, no captions. Um, so unless you really, uh, 
you know, knew about Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, could read, you know, did could see that I'm using a different camera and things like that. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't be obvious, that difference. I mean, so it feels like, it, you, you know, it feels like you're sort of, I mean, this is my own interpretation, but it feels like you're just saying it's all part of the same fucking mess really and yeah. uh you know it's a different country same shit kind of thing but what made you decide to, to to do that to go to afghanistan i think you sort of you know left your lovely uh partner in in the u.s and i would have thought having had that experience of iraq you know maybe you were you had some mixed feelings about it but but maybe not yeah i mean i i think like I joined the army as a combat photographer because I wanted to be a documentary photographer who covers conflict. Mm. Um, that was my goal from the start and joining the army was the only way I knew how to, um, you know, get started in that world. Um, so I, I think when I left the military, uh, right after my second tour, you know, after, five and a half, six years in, uh, this was 2009. So the war in Iraq, uh, was pretty much over by then, um, in terms of that kind of like, you know, constant U S military being involved and pitched battles on the ground. Um, but in Afghanistan, it was just ramping up. So it made sense for me, uh, to go to Afghanistan. And, uh, and sure enough, when I got there, you know, the entire sort of civilian war photography core was there. Um, you know, most infantry platoons on the ground in Kandahar and Helmand and, uh, and the East had a reporter with them all the time you know, doing these two week embeds. So, you know, one reporter would swap out, another reporter would come in and mm -hmm. uh, these soldiers just like always had a media person with them, um, which is a kind of intense pressure that I never really saw in Iraq. Like most units would have, you know, one or two reporters with them for two week periods throughout their whole tour. Um, so sort of being, becoming acculturated into uh, that world of this intense media interest about Afghanistan was like how I started. And then, you know, a year, like in 2011, uh, I came back to Afghanistan expecting to see everybody there. Um, but that was not the case. Everybody was off covering the Arab Spring. And I was really, you know, one of the only photographers uh, working for long periods of time in mm -hmm. Afghanistan from, you know, 2011 to 2016. What advantages did having, you know, served in the military in Iraq give you when it came to, you know, working there? Um, I mean, I certainly spoke the language. Um, mm. You know, I could, uh, uh, soldiers have, you know, their own sort of like, you know, sailor pigeon almost, you know, this, <laughs> yeah. this uh, mix yeah, you, of slang and jargon um, that I could yeah. navigate very easily. But it's not like anyone any soldier would confuse me for another soldier like you know if you're not wearing a uniform if you're not carrying a rifle um you're not a soldier and i know some photojournalists have become confused in that way and felt like they had more of a connection with the military than you know the military perceived them as having i can assure you <laughs> So, like, what was your level of skepticism having, you know, already been skeptical 
in Iraq and and then kind of for that to have been proven uh, valid. What was the general kind of, you know, well, yours and, and I guess, you know, the general kind of feeling among among the American soldiers who were there? I mean, I still felt like, you know, at that point, I was really reacting to what I saw as um, an intense censorship of my work when I was a soldier and I had, you know, a pathological need um, to talk about these wars on my own terms. And I felt like being a civilian photographer um, would give me an opportunity to do that. Mm. Um, within the confines of photojournalism, um, which has its own sort of, you know, very uh, rigid parameters about objectivity, um, you know, I also felt uh, pressure to, you know, sort of follow the military's narrative um, because of, you know, the structure of how photojournalists are expected to operate. Um, you know, so after six years of that, you know, I wasn't just reacting to uh, the censor- the military's own censorship, but I was also reacting to my own self-censorship. I was reacting to... Um, the institutional pressures put on photojournalists um, to document the war in a particular way. And, uh, you know, after spending most of my adult life, you know, under these sort of parameters and strictures that I felt like, um, you know, did not communicate the, you know, inherent, like, absurdity and chaos of these wars... Um, I felt like a photo book was the right medium um, to approach that, particularly like a self-published photo book that, um, yeah. you know, I was in charge of. Yeah, you were saying that you were still struggling between the sense of what was important to, to photograph and indoctrination into making photographs that were useful for somebody. So, I mean, yeah, if you were feeling that way, I can only assume that, that you know, everyone else must feel similarly when they're trying to do that job. But you tried to circumvent the the sort of military's restrictions. Did that work to some extent? So, I mean, I took, I sort of had different strategies to circumvent that because, you know, think about this. This is something that's playing out over many years. So my first instinct to sort of circumvent the military's, um, you know, inherent restrictions on photography and, um, you know, how the embed program works. Uh, so first I should say that, uh, you know, being embedded with the military is an inherently sort of non-independent structure. So you are reliant on the military for transportation, for food, for shelter, for security. Um, and the reason that that all is done that, you know, uh, reporters are put in these situations where they share deprivation and risk with soldiers is the idea um, that that will result in bonds of affection between the reporter and the soldier, which, you know, the, the system works to some yeah, extent. Yeah, it's kind of clever psychology. Yeah, right. And that those bonds of affection will result in more positive coverage. Um, you know, the military doesn't do they didn't do the embed program because they felt like the American public has a right to know, a right to see, you know, uh, that the journalism was an important sense of accountability for them. 
Um, but because positive media coverage serves their like military and political aims. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's good to go into the embed program, sort of understanding how that works and being a former soldier who was responsible for embedding journalists. Like I understood how it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In a good position. But then you, you were saying that you decided photographing the theatrics in a straightforward way was a more uh, revealing strategy in a way. Can you sort of, yeah, expand on that a little? Yeah, I, I mean, I think like when I first tried to circumvent these restrictions by going to, you know, the furthest flung outposts, the most violent places, the places where public affairs soldiers could get nowhere near me and I could really work on my own. I feel like a lot of the work I did in those places were actually playing right into the military's narrative of, you know, these are soldiers like fighting hard in difficult circumstances. Um, and that's what the war was. Um, you know, the war was actually, um, this absurd premise that the U S could reshape Afghanistan in its own sort of military and cultural and political image, uh, through the use of military power. Um, I was not going to be able to confront that effectively, um, by going, uh, and spending time at the tip of the spear. Um, Mm. where I could confront that more effectively in a visual sense was by staying on these mega bases, you know, where salsa night is happening, where, uh, you know, where these sort of theatrical performances for reporters, uh, were being put together. And, um, it took me a long time to see that. Uh, but a real, I had a really important conversation with, uh, the photographer Edmund Clark, um, Mm -hmm. while I was in Bagram, you know, I met him like on my way out to some like gnarly outpost in the (laughs) East. And, you know, he was doing this project, just staying at Bagram, like photographing blast walls with this spectacularly expensive Hasselblad. (laughs) And I was like, what are you doing here, dude? And, uh, he really convinced me that I needed to, you know, sort of change my approach. And, Mm, um, mm. you know, it was just one of those, uh, um, you know, punctuation marks in my career. Inflection point. Yeah. yeah, It was a real inflection point that, um, you know, uh, any photojournalist will have many of those inflection points, but, uh, you know, that was a key one for, you know, what you're talking about. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that because I seem to remember having a similar conversation with Ed about 25 years ago, and I think he was sort of saying the same stuff then. So he was way ahead of his time, frankly. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, thinking outside of the traditional kind of confines of, of photojournalism, even at a time when, you know, well, long before anyone else had had done that but anyway ed's done the podcast people can hopefully find his episode and have a listen to it so all right so let's talk about 300 meters then now is it fair to see this as some kind of sequel or some kind of uh part two or you know how do you think of it because this is images that you took in afghanistan um i think primarily or entirely and uh yeah what's how do you think of that in terms of it you know being the 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 follow-up you know when service member came out in 19 and then was uh reprinted uh the next year um because it sold out really fast to my 
shock and delight. Um, I really felt like that was sort of my final word on the global war on terror. You know, Afghanistan was sort of in this stable place with, you know, five to 10,000 soldiers. Um, the Taliban were, um, still sort of a distant threat, not, you know, having any real political power in Afghanistan. My friends in Afghanistan, you know, were going about their lives and, and daily business, um, you know, in a reasonably stable and predictable way. Um, so I really thought like, you know, maybe I've said what I had to say about the global war on terror and, and that's, and that's finished. Um, but it was during, uh, August of last year, uh, during the Taliban's, you know, uh, meteoric rise to power, um, and, uh, the collapse of the American military and the dire straits that, uh, my friends and colleagues in Afghanistan now faced that I felt like, um, there was something else, uh, there for me to do. And it really, you know, the sort of structure of the book came from the experience that, um, myself and some other veterans and our Afghan friends and colleagues had, um, while we were trying to coordinate, uh, basically intelligence through, uh, you know, military and civilian channels in Afghanistan to try and get them into HKIA, uh, Hamid Karzai International Airport, um, and get on one of these flights out of the country. Um, because we didn't know if the Taliban were going to, you know, take Kabul and, you know, murder anyone with Western sympathies or, uh, you know, connections with, yeah. connections, uh, with the, the military or the media. Um, so that was about three weeks of me and three other veterans running 24 hour operations from, you know, like I was in running from this very room, um, trying to get, you know, the best information we could to, uh, you know, help our friends navigate these oceanic crowds around the airport and to make connections inside the airport, which, you know, we had, like we had their names on the lists. Um, but we just could not solve the tactical problem of getting them through these increasingly huge and increasingly violent crowds. Um, and we abandoned the efforts a few hours before, um, the suicide bomber struck at the gate, um, because we had good intelligence that that was going to happen. Um, oh, wow, really? and, uh, you know, so some of our friends are still in Afghanistan. Some did make it out and are in Europe right now. Um, but, uh, you know, these, like this experience like happened over WhatsApp and, um, these, the chats, uh, that we were, uh, using and the photographs that we were sharing, um, you know, I felt like there was sort of a, an epilogue to the global war on terror because this was the end of the, of a 20 year war in Afghanistan. Like it's over the Taliban won. And, um, you know, so, uh, my colleague in Afghanistan and I like over this winter of, you know, 
us both being really depressed uh, about, you know, not only like the Taliban taking over, um, him being stuck in Afghanistan, me failing at, you know, something I thought I could pull off. Our conversations over that winter led to 300 meters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had these pictures that I had made in Afghanistan back in 2011, so 10 years prior to the fall, almost to the day, um, during the uh, opium poppy harvest in Kandahar. I had made these pictures with this weird toy camera that uh, I had first encountered when I was a teenager. Uh, it was called a spin shot. It was produced in very limited quantities by this LA Times photographer. You can Google it. It's called a spin shot 35S. And um, you basically pull a string and let it go, and the camera spins around in a 360-degree circle. Well, it's not a precision instrument. It's more like 412 yeah. degrees. Um, <laughs> right, you, know, yeah. uh, you know, and you can adjust it by, like, how far out you pull the string and, you know, whether you just release it or, you know, guide it back into the camera body yourself. Anyway, it was this weird camera that took these strange 360-degree pictures with a plastic lens so there was all kinds of distortion there you know it shoots on about uh seven inches of 35 millimeter film so on a roll of 36 you can get six or seven pictures Mm -hmm. and i brought it to afghanistan as kind of like an icebreaker you know just to make myself a little bit more memorable for the soldiers to you know put them a little bit more at ease you know playing around with this toy camera um and uh, I had no, you know, idea in 2011 that I would do anything with these. So I developed them really sloppily, you know, like bubbles got trapped mm. against the film when I was developing it. And, you know, uh, lots of scratches. Yeah, lots of scratches because dust got into the camera yeah. and, you know, just gouged the film up. Um, I very carefully spotted like pieces of dust out from like scanning, but the scratches themselves, uh, I left in. Yeah. So Joe Sacco did a great accordion book. Joe Sacco is a graphic novelist, um, who has used the medium of the graphic novel to, um, you know, to do really in-depth reporting. Um, you know, his Gaza book is unbelievable, but he did a, uh, accordion book, um, on the battle of the Somme in World War One, where the entire battle, um, which goes overnight and into the next day, is recorded in this one continuous drawing that he made. Mm. It's an wow. unbelievable object. You can find it on Amazon for like 10 bucks. Mm. You know, they printed wow. a bajillion of them. Um, and, uh, you know, so that had always got me thinking about doing an accordion book. And, and I felt like there was something there to... Um, to make an accordion book out of these really long, really strange uh, pictures and then sort of wrap it in this object of uh, text from these WhatsApp chats, Hmm. you know, to, so to put, um, you know, the opium poppy harvest where there are Taliban fighters like out in the field harvesting opium uh, the U.S. and Afghan soldiers are there, too. Nobody's messing with each other. You know, there's big money happening here. Like, you know, you mess with people's money, it's going to cause problems. Um, right. So, you know, it was this kind of, like, revealing 
thing about the it's war. Kind of a, yeah, kind of a metaphor for the whole shit show in a way. Yeah, and, you know, like, how could that metaphor possibly end um, mm. other than, you know, the Taliban, like, taking over the country? Um, so I felt like there was something conceptually that connected these works that were uh, separated by, by 10 years. Um, mm. So I worked with uh, Kumar and Harriman again. Um, on, yeah, they did detention service member as well. Yeah, yeah. They designed detention service member um, and, uh, and 300 meters as well. And uh, yeah, Yarun um, Yarun Kumar came up with this really beautiful design with this poppy red cover, the uh, the WhatsApp chats uh, wrapping this sixteen uh, foot long accordion um, mm. that you know can be interacted with in all kinds. Yeah, of Yeah, you can look at it in all kinds of ways. Yeah, it look, it looks great. I've, I've only I've just not seen a physical copy, and I'd love to. But um, just uh, just seeing the kind of PDF itself, and, and actually the video of you uh, showing us it, uh, I think on YouTube it gives us a certain sense of what it's like. Have you seen um, George Giorgio's Last Stop? That's the only accordion book I've got. Yeah, you have. Yeah, yeah that that's another that's another example. And you know, you can play around with the with the narrative in a sense. So, yeah, so it was kind of response to this this withdrawal, this infamous withdrawal, mm-hmm. uh, which happened, what, August 20? Yeah, August, mm-hmm. um, very recently. Um, it's this kind of standard narrative is that it was a total mess and awfully mismanaged, and which indeed is undoubtedly the case. But I'm wondering about, you know, someone who sort of knows the lay of the land there, what would have been you know, a better way to do it? Because I've never really heard anyone <laughs> offer any um, suggestions as far as that goes. Yeah, I mean, from a tactical sense, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, like, not giving up Bagram Airfield, which is, you know, an eminently defensible uh, position in uh, the, surrounded by mountains in the east. Um, but, you know, the Trump administration wanted to get the military numbers down to a certain level. Um, and the military felt like they had to close up Bagram and fold the military presence into Kabul itself, which is, you know, totally indefensible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that's why they let Bagram go. If they had kept Bagram, you know, they could have evacuated people easily to Bagram and then, you know, made an orderly evacuation from there. Mm. Um, you know, the uh, 3rd Ranger Battalion was uh, champing at the bit um, to, uh, you know, do a parachute assault on Bagram and take it back from the Taliban. But, you know, obviously uh, Biden wanted nothing to do with that plan. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. It would have been... He'll stay the fuck away from, the, yeah. from that plan, yeah. yeah he let the oh Rangers off the leash. Like, that's <laughs> going to be high profile. Yeah, that's going to be a PR disaster, regardless of the, uh, of the outcome, I would imagine. But it feels like, it seems like you feel a very sort of strong kind of moral and ethical, you know, obligation to, to the people that you know there in a way, you know, people that perhaps, you know, you met um, when you were working there or people who helped you do your job in some sense. I mean, obviously some of those people are also just friends of yours, but um, is that the way you kind of feel about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I feel like it was a total betrayal of... Mm you know, our friends and colleagues who 
you know, many of whom grew up uh, not even remembering the, you know, Taliban regime from 1996 to 2001, um, or, you know, the civil war that preceded that, or, you know, the Soviet occupation that preceded that. Um, you know, and, you know, I'm not saying there was, uh, like, that the best option was for America to stay in Afghanistan indefinitely. I'm not saying that, you know, the Afghan military and government wasn't intensely corrupt. Um, but, you know, I had a lot of friends and colleagues who enjoyed certain freedoms in their lives, you know, particularly uh, my female friends in Afghanistan um, who had, uh, you know, in journalism, who, you know, were able to work in journalism and be on television um, and have agency over their own lives. And, uh, you know, their, their daughters could go to school. Um, that is largely gone. You know, I, I remember interviewing uh, Shabana um, Basij and uh, who ran a uh, girls' school uh, near Kabul. And, um, you know, she described going to secret school during the Taliban regime uh, when she was growing up. You know, it was like an underground school for, uh, for just girls, and it was really dangerous. Mm. Um, you know, it's... Uh, it, you know, our obligations to, um, you know, to our friends are... It's something that I'm not really willing to let go of. Um, you know, I'm hoping I can, you know, make a little bit of money with 300 meters that I can send to my friend who's stuck in Afghanistan. Um, yeah. You know, the, the title he came up with, uh, you know, he's very much entitled to uh, the proceeds from this book. Um, that was the distance that they had to cover, was it? Yeah. So beyond 300 meters, the, the area around the uh, airport wasn't that dangerous. It was at about 300 meters away from the airport um, where it really got intense. Um, so the WhatsApp chat is, navi is us navigating um, this group of about 30 of our you know, Afghan colleagues and friends and other people we picked up along the way. Um, to zero meters. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the sort of distance they are from the gates is, uh, you know, discussed in the chat uh, a few times. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it was like impossible to get in. It was impossible to get out. Um, you know, the accordion book is this continuous loop of these photographs that go around and around you know there's no beginning there's no end yeah yeah um, makes sense to use that method as a, as a kind of uh, metaphor for that issue yeah much um, to the chagrin of the uh uh printer and binder um, yeah well more work for them to say the least yeah yeah recording books are really tough <laughs> yeah really, yeah so i hear but also you know like it's been said you know many times but the problem with the kind of international kind of news agenda is that you know everyone's there for the big dramatic moments and then they all fuck off mm -hmm. elsewhere in the world and then we don't know what's happening anymore unless you really obviously you know we live in a world thankfully where there's a lot of information that can be found but in terms of mainstream news you know it's like no one cares um, and that's that's the problem, I think. And like you say, you know, who knows really? I mean, I guess we can we can we can make some educated guesses about what's happening there now. But obviously, you've got 
contacts on the ground so you're yeah. probably in a better position to know than, than a lot of us oh yeah if you care about what's going on in afghanistan right now you can get good information mm-hmm. um you know but it is like very much an information warfare environment um that was even more true during the uh hkia evacuation um you know information was utilized solely for tactical gain um, between the Taliban, between the military, between uh, the people trying to get out. Um, so knowing what was true uh, and sort of navigating that information warfare landscape um, was, you know, another challenge on top of that. You know, some of these, like, you know, the group of veterans that I was working with directly was just four of us. Um, there was a much larger group um, that sort of started with a bunch of uh, U.S. Military Academy, uh, so that's West Point um, uh, graduates. And, um, you know, some of them uh, did interviews uh, in real time with media outlets and sort of disclosed our TTPs, which are tactics, techniques, and procedures, which was useful for people trying to uh, disrupt our activities. Um, so, you know, even engaging with the media in this time, um, you know, even though I'm a member of the media, uh, you better believe like I didn't do any interviews while that stuff was still happening. Um, because you know, this was an information warfare environment. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So like, are you finally done with this uh, kind of um, this subject matter? Is this the kind of uh, full stop at the end of, of of that phase in your in your career? This this book. You know, I mean, it's really hard to say that. I, I mean, I, I thought that might be the case in 2019 when I made service mm-hmm. member. Um, you know, I, I certainly um, you know meant the book to be like, you know, this is sort of an epitaph. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, it's hard to say. Um, I don't, you know, feel any like pressing desire to go to Ukraine, for example. Um, you know, even though like I am an ethnic Ukrainian Jew, um, Mm. you know, my family was burned out of Ukraine in 1910 by the Cossacks and the Ukrainians. Um, and, uh, they never looked back. Um, they went to the U S and were done with Ukraine. So I have kind of complicated feelings there. Right. Um, but, uh, but at the same time, like, you know, as an East versus West conflict, you know, I feel tremendous loyalty to the West. Mm. Um, you know, but, uh, I mean, certainly in terms of like my military experience, I have nothing to offer Ukraine, Mm. like, you know, the kind of weapon systems that I'm, you know, have some expertise on, you know, I I could teach somebody how to do that in five minutes. It's not like, you know, something. So I have some kind of specialized skill set that would be, you know, useful for, Mm. um, Ukraine. How do you think that your experiences, you know, specifically in the military, but also then going to Afghanistan have sort of shaped who you've become now? I mean, it is who I've become now. Um, Mm. you know, I don't really see any separation, um, you know, between like an idea of, you know, who I am and, uh, you know, the things I've done and, you know, the things I've learned, 
I guess the question I meant to ask or what I'm trying to get is, is, you know, are there any positive takeaways for you personally, having had those experiences, regardless of, you know, the more sort of what the, the kind of macro, you know, 50,000 foot view of it being a, a, a horrible waste of, uh, of everyone's time and, uh, and energy as far as the, uh, you know, US and, and the British military come to think of it. Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, I mean, I don't have any regrets for, you know, about spending um, most of my adult life uh, at war, um, mm. both as uh, a combatant and a non-combatant. Um, I mean, I, it was a terrible war um, that, you know, shouldn't have happened in the first place. Um, but I mean, you know, with service member, I was trying to detail how, like, how do regular people just sort of get swept up in the madness? You know, how, how does this just become like this orgy of like, you know, collective murder and misinformation and uh, chaos, chaos, yeah, utter chaos. Um, you know, I for some reason, like I get asked to talk in political science classes every once in a while. Like I have friends who are political scientists and, you know, the problem I have with the way that uh, war is discussed in political science in the political science sphere is that uh, combatants are uh, di- are referred to as rational actors or, you know, they're. You know, the idea is that, is that uh, the people terminology? act in their own self-interest uh, in a rational and considered way. Mm. That has not been my experience. Right. <laughs> yeah. I remember I mean, thinking back to what you, one thing you said was that you, at one point you felt like, you know, I don't know, you know, you were completely out of your depth or that you were a photographer taking pictures of a situation out of your depth. And I thought every good documentary or every good depiction of, of war I've ever seen, it feels like everybody feels out of their depth like everybody is in that position is there some truth in that do you think yeah i mean i i think the most interesting work i did as a soldier um was when the pictures were primarily you know guided by like panic you know, just <laughs> yeah. like other fear and chaos and not knowing what I'm doing. Mm. Um, just pointing a camera um, at whatever the hell crazy thing was happening right in front of me. Um, mm. You know, I didn't have any ideas going in about, you know, what I wanted to do and how I wanted to, you know, represent the war. But I mean, that's like a trajectory that I find there's a trajectory that I find a lot of documentary photographers have where they start out having no idea what they're doing and just sort of putting themselves in these crazy situations and taking, you know, these really sort of uh, unskilled and unsophisticated pictures, you know, and then they start to get better at better at photography and they think they've found the solution to photography and they take all these really boring pictures that look exactly the same. You know, they sort of waggle a 28 millimeter lens at moments and, you know, push the button when the composition is sufficiently complex, you know, and then, you know, after a few years of that, uh, they get bored and start um, sort of being more experimental and um, more intentional 
uh, about their work, and then the work starts to get interesting again. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's like some kind of some kind of Zen Buddhist trajectory there going on. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm you not know, really sort familiar of, with Zen Buddhism. Well, n- no, me neither. But you, you basically you start simple, then you get complicated, then you come back to simple. That's kind of the way that I'm sort of conceptualizing what you're saying in a way. I mean, so going back to simple is really hard. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think like, I, I haven't even really gotten back to simple unless 300 meters is simple, you know, in some ways it's really complex. Mm. Um, in some ways it is really simple. Um, you know, I think it's, it's eight pictures, you know, mm. I mean, yeah, each picture is like 15 pages long. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> um, but, and it's like 400 words of text. Um, but at the same time, like, I don't think I can ever go back to that place where I was, you know, 24 years old, um, completely out of my depth, experiencing all of these, uh, you know, all this chaos and violence for the first time, Mm. Um, you know, which is why I always advise like very early career photographers, you know, who are, you know, in their early 20s or whatever to just like leave it all out on the track, like, you know, hit it as hard as you can, you know, I know it's going to be like unsatisfying and you're going to feel like all your pictures are bad. Like take the pictures, like hit it hard. Hmm, Absolutely. Best of luck with 300 meters, Ben. It's, um, it's always a great pleasure to talk to you. I'll, I'll put links and and stuff in, in the show notes to, to the book and and maybe to the little YouTube video so people can have a look at it. But I I presume there'll be, if you do sell enough copies, you might be able to give some, some other funds to your friends in Afghanistan. Is that, is that more or less the plan or? Yeah, that's the plan. Um, yeah, we're, uh, uh, almost at break even. Um, and, uh, yeah, there are only uh, 600 books. Um, you know, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it could be uh, a good thing for um, um, my friends in Afghanistan and mm-hmm. also, like, a pretty rad, like, limited, unique object. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and certainly for, you know, if you uh, like detention service member, um, yeah, you, I think you're going to dig 300 yeah, meters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and, I mean, thank you so much for, uh, you know, such insightful questions and and commentary. I mean, you know, making stuff in this room um, is, it's often very isolating and, you know, Mm. it's hard to, you know, sort of understand what you're even doing. Um, So, yeah, I I really appreciate that and and our conversations at Chico as well. Yeah, me too, man. Me too. I appreciate you saying that because I don't feel like my questions are very insightful half the time. I feel like I have still to the, even after doing 180 something of these, I have no fucking idea what I'm, what I'm doing. So it's nice to, (laughs) to have your, uh, your kind of validation. It means a lot to me. Thank you, Ben. Yeah. Thank you, Ben. 